Good evening. Turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 10. Thanks, Adam. Reach in, praise team, band, reminding us that we have access to the throne because of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. Well, let's ask the Lord to bless this evening as he already has. Bless the preaching of the word. Lord, thank you uh, for the word of God. We we, we know what Paul says, and that is all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we believe that even for genealogies, and we pray that you would do that by your spirit tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. These, this week, a, a gubernatorial candidate in a nearby state was asked in an interview why the candidate was making so much of abortion rights in the campaign when inflation and high consumer prices was the number one cultural conversation at the moment. Now, in one sense, I don't agree with the interviewer because I do believe uh, the issue of abortion is number one. Uh, but you see the point that was being made. Uh, there is inflation. There is high consumer prices, gas prices. And the candidate responded in this way. Let's be clear. Having children is why you're worried about your price for gas. It's why you're worried about how much food costs. For women, you can't divorce being forced to carry an unwanted pregnancy from the economic realities of having a child. Women, especially those of childbearing age, they understand that having a child is absolutely an economic issue. Well, Lord have mercy on that prevalent worldview. A worldview that says the worst thing we can do to the climate uh, and to the earth is to have a child. Because that child, over the course of a lifetime, will contribute 58 tons of carbon monoxide into the atmosphere. And so if you care about the planet, if you care about the ecosystems and the ocean, don't have children. That's a wicked thing to do. Well, this godless, satanic philosophy and worldview is not new. As far back as 1969, Planned Parenthood, uh, who incidentally plants their little uh, offices in the places where uh, people are the most vulnerable, they produced a memo recommending strategies for population control. This was 1969, and it, it informs much of what you see going on today. It's called the Jaffe Memo compiled by Planned Parenthood Vice President Frederick Jaffe. The plan included, get this, restructuring the family. What does that mean? Well, encouraging, postponing, and avoiding marriage, substantial marriage tax, child taxes, taxes uh, for married more than taxes for singles, the encouragement of homosexuality. How do you encourage that while normalizing it? and also by legalizing homosexual marriage, tax-funded abortion, and get this, compulsory abortion uh, for 
out of wedlock pregnancies um, and sterilization, which means compulsory sterilization of all who have two children except for a few who would be allowed three. That's 1969. Well, as we've seen, uh, that, that worldview is found in virtually all of the pagan ancient Near Eastern accounts of the flood. In fact, in these pagan ancient Near Eastern accounts of the flood, humanity is depicted as a nuisance to the gods. Well, we know that's utterly pagan, but it's as contemporary as it is pagan. And it's a far cry from the worldview of the Bible, the worldview of, of Genesis. Overpopulation, utterly nonsense. The original mandate was to be fruitful and to multiply. And then after the flood, that was not rescinded. Immediately after the flood, what does God tell Noah? He blessed Noah, his sons, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Humankind is not a nuisance to God's world. It is God's plan for the world. And we saw last week that the entire population is going to come from Noah's sons. Uh, just for review, look at chapter 9, verse 19. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And that's why they had longer lives, among other reasons. And certainly that would have been a supernatural thing to be able to, to produce and multiply as they did. Now we come to a genealogy that shows us that is playing out. In other words, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, is coming to fruition. Image bearers, let me say again, are not a burden on the planet. They are God's strategy. God's strategy for the world. Now, if you had a main point for Genesis 10, uh, there's no better way to say it than the last verse of Genesis 10, uh, verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. That's why this chapter has been called, and hence my title from the sermon tonight, The Table of Nations. What Moses is doing in this passage, inspired, incidentally, we recognize, let me give you a term if you're not aware of it, and I'm sure you probably, many of you are, verbal plenary inspiration. Uh, what we mean by that is not just the concepts and the doctrines of the faith are inspired, even the very words, the very words, all scripture, every word of it is inspired, which means Genesis 10 is as inspired as John 3, 16. And that's why we preach it. That's why we, we consider it. And Moses, what he's doing here is showing the population of the world disseminating from Noah and his three sons. In other words, every person on the planet has a common ancestry in Noah. That's why racism 
is essentially a, a foolish uh, sin because we have a common ancestry. And this is depicted as a good thing. The population and, and the earth being filled with image bearers is depicted in Genesis 10 as a good thing, indeed, a necessary thing. But in this post-fall world, even though the multiplication of the peoples and the nations is a good thing, the best thing about this chapter is that a foundation is being laid for a redemptive solution to the sin problem that has been prevalent since Genesis 3. The flood didn't deal with it. We saw that with Noah. Noah's a train wreck himself. But a plan is in place. And we begin to see that play out in this genealogy. It's out of this one humanity that Abram will be called in Genesis chapter 12. Indeed, it's as if God says to Abraham, you're the solution. And in fact, he does say that in chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, in you, get this, in you. In other words, through your line, through your offspring, through your seed, through your family, in you, all peoples of the earth. Who are all the peoples of the earth? Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 11. We'll see that when we look at the Tower of Babel. In you, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And that blessing is salvific. It's salvific blessing. Keep in mind that this genealogy, though, is very unique. In fact, scholars say there's nothing like it in any kind of ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, nothing has been uncovered like it. Its uniqueness lies in the fact that it deals with nations and peoples rather than with individuals. Generally, when you read about a, a reader genealogy, it's dealing with individuals. But this genealogy is dealing with nations and peoples, and individuals are mentioned, but their importance lies in the fact that they are the ancestors for groups and for peoples. That's what makes this so unique. Well, that brings us to verse one. There's really no sermon divisions because <laughs> it's just one list of names. It, it reads like a Jerusalem phone book. Um, now the whole earth, that's chapter 11. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And so from verses 2 to 5, we see the table of nations begins with Japheth, who is the elder son of Noah. Now, notice in verse 2, it says, the sons of Japheth, Gomer. Now, you have to pronounce these names correctly to really get the point. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the Hebrew didn't have vowels, and so these were added later, and so we wouldn't know exactly how to pronounce uh, these names. Uh, you will when you get to heaven, and, and they'll correct you there. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, 
Tarshish, Kedem, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples, don't forget that, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. And so the Japheth table, his family that we see here, consists of two groups of seven, seven sons and seven grandsons. And remember the promise that God made to Japheth through Noah that he would enlarge Japheth's tent. It's coming to fruition. So there is a context for this. But remember as well that Japheth will be blessed by dwelling in Shem's tent. Remember that? And so the blessing is going to come through the line of, of Shem. All blessings, salvific blessings, will come through the line of Shem. Now I want you to consider in light of that, one of the great servant songs. This morning I talked about the fact that there's four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Well, the first servant song is in Isaiah 42. And hear this prophecy. Behold my servant. Of course, we know that servant is Jesus. Whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice, or you could say righteousness, in the earth, and notice, and the coastlines wait, the coastlands wait for his law. We just read about these coastland peoples in verse 5. See, there's the people of Japheth. And so we see that the suffering servant who is from the line of Shem is going to ultimately be a blessing to the coastland peoples. Isn't it amazing how the Bible just fits together? It's as if there's just one author. And there is. Well, um, now Moses moves to the son who did not receive a blessing from Noah, but a curse. That is Ham. That brings us to verse 6. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabtika, the sons of Ramah. If I read one again, I may pronounce it two different ways. Sheba and Dedan, Cush fathered Nimrod. Now, that's an important name. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Calah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came and calf Torim. Now, 
You've already seen some names you recognize, like the Philistines. But in verses 15 to 19, this is going to read like a most wanted poster for Israel. These are some of the, 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 the enemies of, of Israel in the, in the next passage. And you're going to recognize many of them. Verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the, the Sinites, the Arvidites, and the Zimmerites, and the Hamathites. After, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, which is on the southern part of this Gaza Strip right there on the southern part of Israel, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And so from Canaan, uh, Ham's son came the many nations that Israel would, would have to dispossess uh, to conquer the land. And of course, we'll see that that will happen when the, when the iniquity of the Amorites, which is a, uh, another term for the Canaanites, reaches its fullness. We see that in Genesis 15, 16. And so Israel will be used by God to punish these nations. Because remember, all nations are accountable to God because God created us. And as the creator, we are all subject to him. And from Cush came the Ethiopians and the great kingdoms that would harass Israel. And as Israel was faithful to the covenant, they would have dominion over these nations. And when they were disobedient to the covenant, uh, the nations would have dominion over them. These nations would kind of serve like a thermometer for, for Israel. Uh, when things are good and they're spiritually healthy, Israel is living in victory. And when things are bad and Israel has turned their back on God and his covenant, uh, they are under the thumb of these nations. Ham's descendants would inhabit uh, Africa, but the Africans are not his only descendants. Notice Nimrod, um, and I've never met anyone named him Nimrod. Um, maybe you have. Um, took many of the descendants of Cush into the land of Shinar, which is Babylonia, which most believe is modern-day Iraq, and established himself as the first of the world's great rulers. And so Moses makes clear that Nimrod's kingdom began at Babel. And that's going to come up again um, as we will be together in a couple of weeks in, in Genesis. So it's very possible, and I tend to think this, that the instigator of the Tower of Babel is Nimrod. That's why that is an important name for us. In fact, the word mighty used to describe him is used three times for Nimrod, which reflects the fact that he is a warrior. But notice it says he, he was before the Lord. Some people have taken that to mean that he honored God with his life. But that's not necessarily what that means. It could mean that the Lord was very aware of his rebellion. In fact, Nimrod's name means, get this, let us rebel. So it's hard to imagine 
that he is living a life that's honoring to the Lord when his name is let us rebel. Of course, his mom didn't give him a fighting chance by naming him that. But note, he began his kingdom at Babel and then later built the city of Nineveh. Now, those are two of the great enemies or uh, wicked cities in the Old Testament, notorious cities. Now, importantly, the, the means, and I think this is very important, the means by which Nimrod achieves his ascendancy implies that he did it by aggressive force rather than essentially the gradual diffusion of people like you see with, the, with these other uh, peoples um, in the table. And in that sense, I think Nimrod kind of serves as a, an example or a, uh, or a type of the, the kind of ancient Near, Eater, uh, Near Eastern empires uh, that arose uh, that harassed Israel. They did it by force. Um, but let's admit it, those, uh, you think about Nimrod, it, it, of all the people that seem to prosper on this list, uh, Nimrod is the one who seems to prosper the most. And likely being a very re rebellious and wicked man, but he seems to prosper the most. And all of us are aware of those uh, who live apart from God in their lives, but they seem to have the most earthly success and influence. Um, that's not new. You read in Psalm 73 where it seems that the wicked are prospering and the psalmist is, is, is discouraged by that. But Psalm 73 reminds us, as he said, he went into the sanctuary of the Lord, that it's not necessarily a sign of God's eternal blessing on them that they prosper in this life. In fact, it may be, in some cases, a sign of his judgment. When a person prospers without God, I heard it said one time, the only thing worse than failing miserably is succeeding miserably. Succeeding in the wrong things. When a person has made that his idol, oftentimes God will often give that person over to that idol. And if that idol is earthly success and earthly wealth, that success and wealth could very well be a sign of judgment. And that's why we need to keep texts like this in mind. And so he allows Nimrod to receive this, this influence and this wealth, but it's clear that he is under judgment. In fact, speaking of, of earthly success, th this reminds us of Genesis chapter four. Consider Canaan in verse 19. I mean, remember, Canaan was one that was cursed. The territory of the Canaanites, verse 19, extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebuim, and as far as Lasha. Um, so his territory as this narrative makes clear, is large, and it's Eden-like. And though Canaan is under God's curse, he is given this land um, in which it, it appears it's a better land than the land of Jephthah or the land of, of Shem. Um, so both the power of Nimrod and the territory of Canaan 
remind us that the appearance of earthly prosperity and true heavenly prosperity are not the same. Matthew Henry says this, those under the curse of God may yet perhaps thrive and prosper greatly in this world. The curse of God always works really and always terribly. But sometimes it's a secret curse. A curse to the soul. And it does not work immediately. But sinners are by it reserved for and bound over to a day of wrath. Canaan here has a better land than either Shem or Jephthah, and yet they, that is Shem and Jephthah, have a better lot, for they inherit the blessing. And if you want to consider the geography right here, um, a concern arises when you consider what Shem most immediately uh, inherits. Jephthah's sons have moved north and and I'm, I'm getting this from scholars. Uh, they, they've moved north and west, and they're, they're populating the Mediterranean. Uh, I'm not a, uh, a scholar when it comes to geography here. But Ham's sons take the, the African continent, the land of Canaan, and build a huge empire to the east uh, in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Here's the question. What's left for Shem? Well, not much at this point. But remember chapter 9, verse 26. These were the words to Shem from Noah. Blessed be the Lord of Shem. Blessed be the Lord of Shem. So at this point, he doesn't have uh, the territory. He doesn't have uh, uh, the, uh, the glamour, if you will, uh, of, of his brothers. But blessed be the Lord of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. But at this point, Shem is hemmed in on all sides, he has nothing, as the table makes clear. Notice in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Jephthah, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpachad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. By the way, uh, Job lived in the land of Uz. I, I have a feeling that is the, the, uh, the same person there. Um, Arkpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, now, I want you to note that word, the name Eber. Um, that word is where we get the word Hebrew. And so Eber is, the, is, is the, essentially the, the father of the Hebrews. Uh, the, the name Hebrew derives from his name Eber. And he has two sons. The first is Peleg and the second is Joktan. We're going to learn in, in Genesis 11 that Peleg uh, will have a son named Reu, who then will have a son named Serug, who would have a son named Naor, who would have a son named Terah. And Terah would have a son named Abram. And so Peleg, who is the son of, of, of uh, 
<laughs> going blank on the name, uh, Eber, uh, Abram will be his great, great, great grandson. And so the, the one in whom the Hebrews is named, Eber, is the great, great, great grandfather of Abram, whose name will ultimately be changed to Abraham. Well, let's close this passage out to Shem. Uh, uh, we see uh, the, the, the father of, of all of these uh, from that line. And then in verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So there we have it. And here's how many names we have. And this is, this is picked up by every commentary. 70 names, 70 nations, 70 names of the nations. From Jephthah, or Japheth, came 14 nations. Shem produced 26 nations. And Ham produced 30 nations. Ham looks to be the one most prospering. He's the one that's got all the territory and he's got the most nations. And from Japheth, uh, we have the, the 14 nations. So uh, it's not unpurposeful that Moses reminds us later towards the end of Genesis that the total number of Abraham's seed that comes out of, um, you know, out in, into Egypt is 70. We see that in Exodus uh, 1 verse 5 and we see it in Genesis 46. So twice uh, the, Moses tells us there are 70 that come out into the land of, of Egypt. Uh, this speaks um, to the role of Abraham's seed. Just so you have 70 nations, you have 70 who come from the line of Abraham who come into Egypt. And this is intentional. And then we learn that Abram's name would be changed to Abraham, the father of many nations. And again, I just think this speaks to Abraham's role, his family's role, in, in blessing these nations. And so in this seed of Abraham, God's original blessing and mandate to be fruitful and multiply will be restored. Let me give you a couple of quotes before we close. Um, Cornelius Vanderwall, because mankind is one in its origin, Israel may not pretend that the calling to be a blessing to all the nations is something strange and incomprehensible. Those nations, after all, are their cousins. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every ethnicity, I don't like to use the word race because there's one race, the human race. There are many ethnicities. Every ethnicity is at least our cousin. Um, those nations are the cousins of the line of Seth, the line of Noah, and of course, the line of Shem. In fact, in Luke chapter 3, Luke gives us a genealogy of Jesus. And what's interesting about that genealogy is it, 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 it takes place between his baptism, where he is identifying with hum, uh, sinful humanity, and his temptation, where he goes into the wilderness led by the spirit and is tempted by the devil 
as our representative. He, he is our substitute. And where we disobeyed, he obeyed. He overcame the temptation. But between uh, the baptism and between the, the temptation, there's a genealogy. It's remarkable that that genealogy would be placed there. And, and in that genealogy of Jesus, here's what it says. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarah, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. And this far off grandson, Luke is telling us, is the definitive seed, the definitive offspring by which all the nations shall be blessed. In fact, Luke is writing as a Gentile to a primary Gentile audience. And he traces Jesus, not just back to Noah, he traces Jesus all the way back to Adam, the son of God, as he is described. I want to give you one more, a couple of verses before we close. Galatians 3.16, Paul writes. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to a primary Gentile church. There may have been some Jews in that church, but it was primarily a Gentile church. Now, the promises were made to Abraham. What were the promises? Well, it would be through his seed all the nations will be blessed. What are the nations? The nations we just read about in Genesis 10. The nations we'll read about in Genesis 11. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul is telling us that the seed of Abraham who will bless the nations is one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can be traced all the way back to Noah and to Adam. And here's what he says to Gentile believers. And if you are Christ, that is, you belong to him by faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Do you get that? Through the line of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And Paul is saying that comes through one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In fact, the ultimate seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, makes clear that the nations are in his scope. Again, what nations? The nations we just read about. The nations we'll read about in Genesis 11. When right before his ascension, and you know this passage well, like you. A lot of churches don't know this passage so well. You know it well. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and therefore make disciples of what? All the nations. Panta ta ethne. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to do all that I have commanded. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus is saying that now that we are his and we have become offsprings of Abraham by faith, we now take part in the, the fulfillment of that promise that is made all the way back in Genesis 12. That's why we give to Lottie Moon. That's why we go to the nations. 
That's why we pray for the nations. That's why Lakeview is a Great Commission church. Because the nations are loved by God. But they need to be saved just like we have been saved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this passage. It's not the easiest passage, but it's important. And it's a passage that is profitable. And I pray that it's been a passage that has strengthened our faith in your plan and purposes that are centered on the God-man, Jesus Christ, and his, his plan for the nations. Father, I pray that uh, every person here would recognize that they are to be a part of this plan. And I pray, Lord, that for those who have been saved, that they would ask themselves, what role do I play? in reaching these nations we just read about. For those who haven't been saved, I pray tonight, Lord, that they would do some soul searching. And Lord, that they would be convicted of their sin and that they would trust in, indeed, the seed of Abraham, the seed of Shem, the seed of Noah, the seed of the woman who came to redeem sinners. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.